This is week 16, and we are going to cover chapter 16. See how I caught back up? Okay, we're doing all right. So this is week 16 in our message series, going through the book of Matthew. And the title of the whole series has been, Here is Our King, because when we come face to face with who Jesus is, we recognize that he is not the king we thought we wanted. The king that we thought we wanted is the king of glory, the king of power, the king of honor, the king of respect, the king who wins all of our battles for us, the king who keeps us safe all the time, the king who brings prosperity into the kingdom. We thought we wanted a king who was like the bully on our side, because if he is the bully on our side, then at the very least, we know we are on the winning side, whether or not it is the right side. We just want to be on the powerful side. All of us have that temptation to pursue power, prestige, honor, wealth, security, comfort, all of those sorts of things. And so deep down, we want a king like that. We've always wanted a king who can just simply do what we want. The problem is no real king is like that. And Jesus is the most unreal of all the kings. He is the farthest from any other earthly king. Uh, Matthew, at the very beginning of his book, you know, in chapter 1, he begins to tell us that Jesus is the inheritance of a triple 14 genealogy. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? No one knows what that means unless you're a super Jew who happens to know that the word David is spelled DVD in Hebrew, and DVD is one way to write the number 14, and Jesus is three times 14 better than David. In other words, Matthew is writing to super Jews, people who know the Old Testament so well, and they know all the lore of the Old Testament, and they know all of the sort of the mythology surrounding it and all of this stuff. They know it so well that Matthew steps in and he says, I'm going to tell you a story about the king you never wanted, but who's better than any other king. And so people's ears are perked and they're ready to hear and Jesus comes on the scene and they're wondering, is he going to make the kingdom happen? And what he does is as soon as he gets on the scene, he wanders off into the wilderness and hangs out for 40 days. As soon as Jesus gets on the scene, he begins to do miracles and people are like, wow, the power of God is coming among people. Jesus, why don't you do the things we want you to do? And so he leaves town. Every single time Jesus shows up, people want him to be on their side. And yet, every single time Jesus shows up, he keeps telling them that they need to be on his side. And his side is the one that says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus is the one who says, deny yourself, take up your cross. Jesus is the one who says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, let them hit you anywhere else they want to also. If someone demands you go one mile, just go an extra one. In fact, go ahead and ask them how many they want you to go with them. Jesus is the guy who says, I want you to love your neighbor. I want you to love your enemy. I want you to pray for those who persecute you. In so many ways, Jesus is not the king that we want. And Matthew is trying to show us time and time again that this is the king and that's what you get. Either you follow this king or you don't. But this is the king that you get because this is the king ultimately we really need. Now, a couple weeks ago, we were in Matthew 14, and we learned that Jesus has unstoppable compassion. Maybe you remember that. 
Jesus has unstoppable compassion. He feeds 5,000 people with a tiny bit of food just because he doesn't want to send them away. He's got too much compassion to send them away. We learned all about his compassion. His compassion to the disciples where he reveals himself as God in the flesh by walking across the water and declaring to them, I am, and they're freaked out and they're scared, but it's the first time in scripture that a human being looks at Jesus and says, son of God. You are the son of God. It's the first time that recognition happens. And so here's Jesus. He's displayed his incredible power. He's displayed his incredible, unstoppable compassion. And then last week, it seems like we took a detour, right? Last week, we spent a little bit of time talking about some other stuff. And I really wanted to cover all of 15 and all of 16 last week. In fact, two weeks ago, I wanted to cover all of 14 and 15 and 16. Because at the end of 16, Jesus makes a statement that doesn't make sense unless you have 14 and 15 in your mind. So that's one of the reasons why I just wanted to remind you of this whole feeding the 5,000 situation and Jesus' unstoppable compassion in chapter 14 because what we're about to see is Jesus' compassion turn in a different direction. You see, the piece that we learned last week is that when the Pharisees created a religious tradition that allowed them to do an end run around compassion, Jesus got furious. They had come up with this rule that says if you dedicate your wealth to God, then you don't have to use that wealth to help your ailing parents. Your parents are growing older, they need some help, or your parents need some financial assistance for some other reason. And as long as you declare that your wealth belongs to God, then you don't have to help your parents. It was an end run by doing something spiritual sounding. And Jesus just read them the riot act last week. He was like, listen, you're hypocrites. You're the kind of people who set up human traditions just so you can bypass God's real law. And the question we kind of asked last week, and the question I'll begin with today is what would it be like if all of the religious traditions that we as human beings accumulate around ourselves were stripped away? If all the religious traditions were just stripped away, what would we we be left with? Well, you'd be left with you and God and the world God has made, the people in that world, whatever God loves around you. See, one of the things we love about religious traditions is that they give us the sense of of comfort. They give us the sense of security. As long as I know that God wants A, B, and C, then if I do A, B, and C, I can do A, B, and C all halfway. I can do half of A, half of B, half of C, and I'm still accomplishing A, B, and C. My heart's not in it. I'm not really doing it all out, but I'm still doing A, B, and C, and therefore, I've checked the box. Therefore, I'm good. Religious traditions give human beings the ability to think that I'm okay with God, but strip away all the religious traditions, and you're just face-to-face with God, and you're just face-to-face with the other people God has made. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he at this point that we begin to pick up this story again, Jesus has basically said, listen, I am going to now show you in reality what this life is supposed to look like. And Jesus does something fascinating. He leaves. 
The Pharisees come up to him. They challenge him with all this stuff. He gets mad at them, and he says, fine, I'm just going to walk away. He leaves, and he goes to a completely different part of the ancient world, an area called Tyre and Sidon. We have some missionaries up in that area, so it's a cool place for us to be talking about today. I was going to show you some pictures of stuff, but listen, I've got too much to talk about and not enough time to show you pictures. So we're just going to jump right on into it. If you have your Bible, go to Matthew 15, verse 21, and we're going to pick up the story there. It says, leaving that place, leaving the place where the Pharisees were attacking Jesus and trying to say that these earthly traditions are the things that we should keep. And Jesus is like, no, we're in a post-tradition faith. We're in a post-tradition kind of world. We're moving beyond that. This is what it says. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now, I'm warning you, we're going to go all the way through chapter 16, and I'm going to spend a lot of time on these first eight verses. So you're going to get scared that this is going to be a two-hour message. It's not. It's going to be you know, maybe 50 minutes, but it's not going to be two hours, okay? So I'm going to spend a little bit of time here because there's a couple little details that you need to see. The first detail is Jesus is way outside Judea. Tyre and Sidon is way far north. The second detail is that this woman is called a Canaanite, and she calls out to Jesus calling him son of David. The reason these two details are so important is that Canaan doesn't exist at Jesus' day. Canaan ceased to exist as an identifiable location, land, way back in the days of Joshua. Pretty much after Joshua, and then they took the land, and then there was this little bit of time, you know, where there were some judges, and then there was the king, David, and well, first Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then the other kings. In that, in that region of time somewhere, the word Canaanite fell out of fashion. In fact, at that point in time, they were just the Philistines and the Amalekites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites, and, and they didn't call them Canaanites anymore because Canaan was that whole area. Now Israel had conquered some of that area, and so it wasn't even fashionable, it wasn't even realistic to call these other people Canaanites anymore. But Matthew writes about a woman from Tyre and Sidon, way north of the land of Canaan way north of the land of Canaan, and he uses the ancient word Canaanite to refer to this woman. Now, the reason that's significant is that the Canaanites deserved the judgment they got. The Canaanites were the people in the land where God said, I'm sending you into that land to conquer them, not because I like you, but because they have failed to follow me. And so now, you're going to wipe them out as my agent, and I will make a covenant with you that you guys now can have the land so long as you follow me. But they were there first, and God says, no, we're going to wipe them out because they haven't been following me. And God specifically said to the land of Israel, I'm keeping my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the reason I'm sending you into this land. It's not because you're so good. It's not because I liked you so much better. It's not because you're anywhere better than the people who already live in the land. We just got to have some time for change. And the Canaanites deserve the judgment they're going to get. And Matthew uses the word Canaanite because every Jew knows that the Canaanites deserve the judgment they got. And here's this woman, and she's dealing with difficult circumstances. Her daughter is demon-possessed, and guess what? She's a Canaanite. You better believe she deserves what she gets. Or does she? 
Matthew says Canaanite because he wants us to see what Jesus would do with a Canaanite. What Jesus would do with a Canaanite. Here's this woman, completely outside the family. But did you notice what she called Jesus? Son of David. That's another interesting little detail. You see, David was the king who expanded the borders of Israel to include Tyre and Sidon. David's son Solomon was the king who actually got cedar from the king of Tyre so that they could build the temple in Jerusalem. David was the king who includes the whole area of Canaan and the outskirts in his own kingdom. And this woman looks at Jesus and she says, you are the son of David. File that away in your mind for just a little bit because we need to do just a little bit more digging. Look at verse 23. It says this, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. That is a very interesting sentence. Why does Jesus keep his mouth shut? Well, if we had done 14, 15, and 16 altogether, you might have remembered that there was a point in time in the chapter 14 where Jesus is teaching a bunch of people and there is an obvious problem that the people can see and the disciples can see, but Jesus doesn't acknowledge. The problem is it's getting late in the day and none of them have any food. And Jesus doesn't address that at all. He doesn't talk about the food, but the disciples bring the issue to Jesus. The disciples say, Jesus, you know what? These people are going to be hungry. And the disciples bring a suggestion to Jesus. And do you know what the suggestion they bring in chapter 14 was? Maybe you remember this. Their suggestion to Jesus was send them away. Here's the problem. These people need some food. Jesus, send them away. By the way, in chapter 14, Jesus and his disciples were trying to get away and have some private time by themselves. In this chapter, it also looks like maybe they were trying to get away from the hassle in Jerusalem and Judea to have some private time by themselves by going way up to Tyre and Sidon. And so the disciples, they recognize the problem first. The woman's annoying. Let's just face it. And then they bring the solution to Jesus. Jesus, get rid of her. Send her away. It's the same situation now as we saw in chapter 14. The difference is there's one woman instead of 5,000 men. But the parallels are unmistakable. Keep going just a little bit farther because we need to find out how Jesus treats this Canaanite. Verse 14, excuse me, verse 24. It says, Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, the reason that's interesting is because that harkens back to something in Matthew 10. But before I get back there, I want to tell you what Jesus' response to the disciples was in chapter 14. Do you remember when they said about the crowd, send them away? Jesus' response to them then was, do you remember? It was, you give them something to eat. So this is how the story goes. The disciples saw the crowds. The crowds needed some food. They said to Jesus, send them away so they can get some food. Jesus' response is, you give them something to eat. You do something for them. Take care of the situation. Take care of their problem. And the disciple says, we don't, we don't have any resources. We don't have any assets. We don't have anything. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? Five loaves and two fish. Jesus takes them. He splits them. He gives them. And then they end up with 12 basketfuls of food left over after everybody has eaten and is satisfied. But it began with the line where Jesus said, to the disciples, you solve the problem. 
Now the disciples have brought another problem to Jesus and another solution of send him away. And Jesus doesn't say to them, you solve the problem. I think it's because Jesus knows at this point in time that they won't solve the problem and they are unwilling to solve the problem even though they had the ability to solve the problem. And that's what takes me back to Matthew chapter 10. Because there's a very, very, very interesting thing in Matthew 10 that I had never noticed until this week. I want to show you 5 and 6 from Matthew chapter 10. Here it is. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. What's interesting is that the phrase Jesus says to the disciples that sounds to us like he is blowing off the woman I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Is exactly the same command that Jesus gave to his disciples just a few chapters earlier. Disciples, you are sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And then the disciples, he says, you are sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. This raises a question. Is Jesus being authentic when he says that he was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel? There are two ways of looking at it. The first way, the way I think is wrong, I'm going to tell you anyway, but the first way is this. Jesus truly was on earth doing a ministry only for Israelites. And the ministry to the Gentiles, the ministry to the non-Jewish people would come later through the hands of other people like the Apostle Paul but that Jesus had come to give special ministry specially to the special people of God in the special land of God known as Israel and the special people known as the Jews. It's one way of taking that passage where Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. It's confirmed because the command he gave to the disciples, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Therefore, it's obvious that Jesus only intended for the ministry pre his resurrection to be to the lost sheep of Israel except it doesn't jive with anything else Jesus did. Because no time in Jesus' ministry does he ever create any kind of dividing line between the people who are Jews and the people who are not. As if the people who are not Jews are somehow more lost. He never creates that dividing line. Remember, Jesus is the one who says, blessed are the poor in spirit, anyone who is poor in spirit. Jesus is the one who says, pray for your enemies, anyone, even the Romans. So for Jesus... It doesn't seem to be that straightforward. I'll give you just a couple more reasons why you should think that. Number one, Jesus has already at this point in time done a lot of miracles healing non-Jews. At this point in time, he has already raised people from illness who were non-Jews. At this point in time, he's also healed lepers. Lepers were outside of the Jewish community because the leprosy made them unclean in more ways than one. And so Jesus had reached out. He'd even touched them. And so Jesus was not all about the Jewish community. He has already done ministry to people outside the Jewish community. Number two, Jesus has already done ministry outside the land of Judea. In fact, Jesus spent a large portion of his ministry up in the area of Galilee that no one really considered to be Judea because Galilee was where all those other Gentiles lived. So Jesus has done ministry to non-Jews. He's done ministry in non-Jewish areas. And he has intentionally left Judea to go north to Tyre and Sidon. 
an area outside of anything that could be considered Israel at the time. And he's done it, and he didn't accidentally end up in Tyre and Sidon and say, oh my goodness, I'm surrounded by non-Jewish people. We better get back to where I'm supposed to be doing ministry. And he didn't go up to Tyre and Sidon somehow saying, okay, we got to shut off the ministry gene and just go and get ourselves some vacation time. It's time to decompress, guys. Let's just go ahead and hang out and relax. It's not that either, as you're going to see in just a little bit. But then there's a third reason why I know Jesus is not being completely authentic here. And it is because the woman called herself someone under the supervision of the son of David. She identifies herself as a subject of the kingdom because the people in Tyre were subjects to King David. I don't know how she knew that. I don't know how that was important to her. But somehow this woman way outside of Israel goes to Jesus and calls him son of David, effectively saying, you're my true king. And as you'll see in just a moment, she kneels down in front of him as soon as she is given the chance. So I don't think Jesus is being completely straightforward with that statement. In fact, it doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. In fact, it sounds like something the disciples would say in response to what Jesus had said. Jesus said in Matthew 10, let me go back to there and show you that one more time in chapter 10, verse 5. Don't go among, among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. The disciples heard Jesus say the words, go to the lost sheep of Israel. He heard them, they heard him say the words, go to the lost sheep of Israel. And so now they are with this Canaanite woman. Ugh. Matthew calls her a Canaanite. He's the one who's with them in that crowd. He's the one who sees her as a Canaanite woman. And so they call her a Canaanite woman. What in the world? This woman is outside of Israel. This woman is outside of the lost sheep of Israel. The thought on their mind would have been, Jesus, you've already taken us away from the towns of Galilee. You've already taken us away from the towns of Judea. Jesus, Jesus, our mission is to the lost sheep of Israel. You said it yourself, using Jesus' own words against him. I can imagine their thought when they bring the topic up to Jesus. They are thinking Jesus is going to respond, you do something. And they are so thinking, but I can't. It's outside my jurisdiction. I think everybody around Jesus, when he says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, everybody around Jesus breathes a sigh of relief. They are not going to have to deal with anything regarding this Canaanite woman at all. They're going to be able to blow this whole thing off. They are just there to have some sweet downtime. They're just there to have some sweet vacation time. And so when Jesus says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, everyone around him is saying, you know, that's right. You know that's right. Jesus, you said it yourself. We're supposed to only go to the lost sheep of Israel. This is one of those instances. Let me just get real personal here. This is one of those instances where Jesus' own words can, use, can be used to create something that feels and sounds spiritual and yet is actually anti-compassion. This is an instance where in just a few short chapters, the disciples could have turned something Jesus actually literally said into a religious tradition that prevents them from feeling any sort of obligation to this woman who is suffering because her daughter is possessed by a demon. And wouldn't you know 
that the disciples have the job of solving that problem. Go back to Matthew 10, not verse 5 and 6, but 7 and 8. Look at this. Jesus says to them, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. See, the command that Jesus had said to them, stay in the area where the lost sheep of Israel is, was incidental He was giving them a pragmatic instruction at the time. Here, guys, don't go too far. He was giving them a pragmatic instruction for the moment. He says, just go to the lost sheep of Israel. But he gave them this bigger command that says, heal the sick and drive out demons wherever you go. It just so happened that Jesus took them to Tyre and Sidon. They're not allowed to look at this woman and say, sorry, you're out of our jurisdiction. Sorry, I I can't solve your problem. And so Jesus had told them they were supposed to drive out demons, but they didn't do squat. The woman's a Canaanite. She's annoying them. Jesus, let's just have Jesus brush her off. Jesus, say the words, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saying the words we needed you to hear so now we can get going. But Jesus stays and listens to her some more. Because at the moment Jesus said what he said, the disciples would have heard what they wanted to hear but they needed to hear it differently. And what the woman does next changes everything. In fact, what the woman does next proves that the disciples are the ones who are the hypocrites in this situation. Take a look. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, again, something that sounds really insensitive, but something that you're going to see is brilliant. He says, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. See, I think what Jesus was doing is he was being just a little bit snarky with his disciples. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel to prove to the disciples that they were thinking about his own command completely wrong. Because he had given them authority to solve this problem for themselves, cast out demons, they could have done it. They could have taken care of this woman, they could have shown her the compassion, they could have solved their own annoyance problem by just serving her, but they didn't. Instead, they just bring it to Jesus, let Jesus brush her off, and so now Jesus does this, and the end of the story for this woman is that she is commended as having great faith while the disciples are off to the side, shamed like dogs with their tails between. The irony in this story, of course, is that Jesus kind of calls this woman a dog, and she accepts it. But the real kind of dogs in the story are these disciples who are now ashamed of their inconsiderate, uncompassionate desire to follow Jesus to the letter without paying any attention to the heart behind it. So, this woman, Jesus says, has great faith. The question for you and me and for the disciples is, what does that mean? What does it mean to have great faith? If this woman is the example of what faith should be like, then let's analyze just a little bit of what she says. The first thing she does is she accepts the fact that she's a dog. 
right? Jesus uses a dog analogy. He says, it's not right for me to throw the children's bread to the dogs. All the Jews referred to the non-Jews as dogs. That's the way it worked. The Jews didn't like the non-Jews. They referred to them like dogs, as dogs. This woman knows that. She knows the racism that is intrinsic to this part of the world and even the religious racism that is part of the Jewish faith at that particular time. And so Jesus calls her a dog and she accepts it. She doesn't debate it. She's just, yes, Lord. She agrees with that statement at the very beginning. She accepts the fact that she is a dog, and that's fine with her. She's not worried about being a dog or not. That's the first aspect of her faith. We'll come to try to analyze what that means. The second aspect of her faith is she says, Jesus, listen, I know I don't deserve squat. I'm just a dog. I don't deserve anything from you. But I tell you what, Jesus, Even the dogs get a crumb now and then. And guess what, Jesus? A crumb from you would be enough. This is a woman who displays her faith with simply this. She says, I don't deserve anything, but a crumb from Jesus is enough for me. A crumb from Jesus is enough for me. When it comes to our lives, so much of our faith is wrapped up in these basic concepts, and so often we get them wrong. I want to start with the word deserve. This woman accepts the fact that she has just been called a dog by Jesus. She's not fighting that. She says, I don't deserve anything, and the truth of the matter is, one of the greatest powers that religious systems have in our world is to tell us the lie that we deserve good from God. Because we have done A, B, and C, because we have attended this particular program, because we have opened our Bible this number of times, because we have not allowed the wrinkles to happen in our Bible, because we are wearing the correct color of hat, because our pants go all the way down to our ankles, because of A, whatever it is, we can come up with any regulation, any rule, anything at all, and as long as we can somehow tie it to something religious, we can say, I deserve blessing from God, right? We can say, I have been to church my entire life except for, you know, you know, three of the four Sundays out of the month. I've been to church at least once a month my entire life. And so as a result, I can say, listen, you know what? I deserve good things from God. We have created such systems around us that allow us to say, I deserve it. Now, listen, some of us who've been in church for a long time, we know Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that in the book of Romans we're told that all people have sinned. Not one is righteous. In Isaiah, not one understands. In Psalm, even the fool says in his heart there's no God. We know these stories about how no one is worthy. And we say, okay, yeah, God, spiritually speaking, I don't deserve anything. Spiritually speaking, I don't deserve anything. But then you know what we do? We immediately move on. And we say, yeah, when it comes to heaven, I don't deserve anything. But when it comes to a promotion, boy, you better believe I deserve that. You better believe I deserve that, God. I've been working hard. Listen, I invested so much of my energy and my time and my education. I deserve my salary. I've invested so much energy in getting the good grades. I deserve that scholarship. I have spent so much of my energy being kind to that person. I deserve respect from them. We are in such a world where we have treated 
we have treated ourselves as entitled at every level. And it's so easy to do. This woman says to Jesus, I deserve nothing. A crumb from you will be enough. And we walk around every single day saying, but I deserve so much. I deserve so much. And as a result, we can't possibly have the kind of faith this I deserve so much. And Jesus would say, do you really? Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Do you really? You say you invested your heart in your education. Yeah, well, who gave you the opportunity for that education? You say, you've overcome this particular hardship and adversity. Yeah, well, who allowed the hardship and adversity to come into your life? And who gave you the strength to come out of that hardship and that adversity? You say, well, I I invested my money wisely. I didn't waste it. I, I saved it. And God says, yeah, well, who taught you how to do that? Everything that we have, everything that we have is a gift. And when you strip it all away, it's just you and God and the people around you. And so this lady says, I don't deserve anything, but Jesus, a crumb from you would be enough. I want so much more than a crumb, but that's because I have no idea what a crumb from Jesus really is. A crumb from you. Now, we've spent a lot of time on this just just a crumb section, but we're luckily going to see a whole bunch of bread next. So keep going with me, Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 29. It says, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. Have you ever heard Jesus go up on a mountain, healing people and teaching people? It's something he's done before, right? Maybe this passage is going to bring to your mind, oh, I've heard that before. And it should, because you have almost heard it before. Verse 32 It says this, or let's see, verse 31. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled made well and the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse along the way. Have you ever heard a situation where Jesus was teaching a bunch of people, healing a bunch of people, interacting with a bunch of people, and someone was concerned about their dietary needs? This is different from the last time. The last time the disciples identified it first, I think Jesus actually did identify it first, but he was waiting for them to do something about it. This time, he knows they're not going to do anything about it, so he identifies it first. And he says, I've got compassion on these people. They're hungry. Oh, and by the way, don't give me the excuse of let's send them away. I don't want to send them away. Okay, now, quiz time, what? I got to remind you, this is chapter 15, right? We literally learned the story of feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 14. That's, it just happened there. Do you remember what Jesus said when they said, the disciples said, let's send them all away? Jesus' response was, you give them something to eat. Jesus is now quizzing them. I've got a crowd of people. Don't want to send them away. What are they supposed to say? They're supposed to say, um, you want us to feed them? right? They know what Jesus is going to say. And you know what? I know they know what Jesus wanted to say. I know they know what Jesus was hinting at because look at what they said next. This is amazing. What the disciples say in verse 33, his disciples answered, 
Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? They know Jesus wants them to feed the crowd, and so they immediately go to resourcefulness. They immediately go to, we don't have enough. Jesus, I know what you're trying to say. I know what you're trying to do. You want us to feed them. Sorry, not going to do it. The last time it wasn't our mission. This time we don't have the resources. And Jesus is like, all right, what do you have? See what it says here. Verse 34, how many loaves do you have? Interestingly, Jesus knows they have loaves, right? He, does, he says, how many? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked? Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. How many loaves was it to feed the 5,000? Five. How many fish was it to feed the 5,000? Two. How many loaves do they have now? Seven. They have more food than they did before. And as you're going to learn in just a little bit, the crowd is smaller than it was before. They're worried about resources. They're worried about resources. And Jesus is literally identifying the fact this crowd is smaller than before and you have more food than you had before. What are you waiting for? But Jesus knows they're not going to do anything, so he takes matters into his own hands. Verse 35, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he'd given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn, they in turn to the people. Again, just keep this in mind. Jesus gives the miracle food to the disciples. And if Jesus passes out 12 portions of food to the disciples, then we have to conclude that the miracle happened in the disciples' hands as they began to pass it out to the other people, right? Because there's no way 12 people can hold the food for 4,000 people. Jesus doesn't multiply the food and give the 12 guys 4,000 servings. Jesus gives the 12 guys 12 things, and it's in their hands the miracle happens, just like before. Exactly the same story. And it says in verse 37, they all ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men, besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into a boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Here it is. Jesus has said to them a long time ago, I'm sending you out and I want you to serve people. Then he had a physical example of it on the mountain with 5,000 people and he gave them, the, he told them, you need to feed them. They said, we can't. He gave them the food as they fed the people. It multiplied. And then Jesus revealed them, himself to them walking on water as God in the flesh. And then they go through this Pharisee thing and then they come up to Tyre and Sidon and they see this woman and Jesus uses a bread metaphor, Right? He uses a bread metaphor with the woman. I'm not going to give you bread. And she says, yeah, but I just want a crumb. Because in Jesus, a little becomes a lot, right? And so with the disciples now back in this teaching mode, there's 4,000 people. And Jesus says, what should we do? And the disciples say, just don't have enough. But here's the thing. I don't have enough. I never have enough. None of us ever have enough. But with Jesus, it's too much. With Jesus, I didn't need seven loaves. I gathered seven basketfuls. So Jesus, how many loaves were an extra bat? We could have gone with, with well, wait, let's see, seven, seven baskets, and we start with seven. Jesus, you mean we didn't even need a loaf? I might not have enough, but with Jesus, it's too much. Spills out on all the people around me. If what I have is given to me by God, 
than freely I have received. Oh, yeah. And in Matthew 10, he said, freely you should. Now, chapter 16 is where we're going to finish up. And some of you are like, we're going to do a whole chapter now? He's just taking up all this time. Don't worry, it's a shorter chapter. But there's a really important reason why we're going to do it, because something in 16 ties the other two together, ties the other things together, and you need to see it. It begins here at the beginning. Uh, well, it begins at the beginning, yeah, verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Okay, Jesus, we've, we've asked you a whole bunch of things. You've given us a whole bunch of miracles. So now we want something real. We want a sign from heaven. Feeding 5,000 people with nothing isn't enough. Feeding 4,000 people with nothing isn't enough. Walking on water isn't enough. Calming the storm, that's not enough. Healing people, that's not enough. Raising the dead, that's not enough. Casting out demons, that's not enough. Jesus, what we want now is we want a sign. We want something that really convinces us you're from heaven. And Jesus, upset with them again, says this. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning today, it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. He says, you can predict weather, but you have no idea what's standing right in front of you right now. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. And that's just Jesus saying that there are some people who won't understand anything about Jesus except for the resurrection. And that's all they're ever going to get. And that's all you really need. Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of a whale. He came back out and then he proclaimed some good news to people eventually. You know, for them, he thought it was bad news, but they received it as good news. They repented and God blessed them as a result of it. But he was three nights and then back up. Jesus says that's the sign they're going to get. And if the resurrection doesn't convince them, nothing else will. But that's, that's the only thing that they're ever going to get. So we're just going to leave that there and move along, he says. But the interaction with the Pharisees prompts him. Look what happens next. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Something about that interaction with the Pharisees tells Jesus he now needs to get direct. And he tells his disciples, another bread metaphor, by the way, yeast. Yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 7, they discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you have little faith. The woman had great faith. These guys have little faith. Why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Do you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Twelve. Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Seven. How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, what happens here is Jesus has had this big encounter with bread and crumbs and all this stuff over weeks it probably took. And now he's finally telling his disciples, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're like, we forgot bread. He's just using code language to tell us we should bring more bread. And Jesus is like, wait a minute, are you nuts I don't need any resource from you. Are you nuts? I don't need anything from you. I don't need your loaves to feed the people. What I need is your hands to feed the people. 
I don't need your loaves. I need your hands. I don't need your bread. I need your willingness. Jesus says to these guys, don't you remember what happened in the feeding of these people? I can make anything appear from nothing. I'm creator God in the flesh. I can walk on water, calm the wind and the waves. I can do it. I don't need your bread. I need your hands. I need your hands. And the disciples of that moment, they recognized that yeast must be metaphorical and the metaphor must be something to do with the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In other words, yeast, they realize, is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Or it's the false teaching that infects whatever the good bread is. The yeast is the false teaching that infects the good bread. So then what is the bread? Well, the bread in both of these other stories is the stuff Jesus gave his disciples. Freely you have been given, freely you should give. Freely you have received, freely you should give. The bread is what Jesus has given to his disciples. And the whole time, You see Jesus trying to coach them into taking action as servants on his behalf, following his lead, doing what he's done, showing compassion, meeting a need, solving a problem. Jesus says, I have freely given to you, freely you should give to others. That's what this is all about. And the problem is that when Jesus gives a crumb and in me, through me, from me, he miraculously makes it into a feast, when that happens, along the way, yeast could get involved. And don't you dare let it. Now, here's kind of the point Jesus is making. He wants us to be able to say, I will receive what he gives and share it with others. I will receive what he gives and share it with others. Not what I come up with, not what the collection of Christians manufacture for themselves. He says, I want you to take what I have given you and give it to others. What he gives and what only he gives. He doesn't want it to be infected with any of these other yeast kinds of things that might show up. He wants it to be pure. He wants it to be from him. But this is important. Remember that sometimes a person can take the exact words of Jesus. I'm supposed to go only to the lost sheep of Israel, right? And they can take the exact words of Jesus and misapply them. That means I'm not allowed to help you. Sorry, lady, you're out of my jurisdiction. Get moving along. And they can use Jesus' exact words to do something Jesus would never want them to do. And that is yeast. Whenever we do the thing, take the thing, encourage the thing that allows me to be selfish, even if the origin of it I can blame God for. The yeast of the Pharisees. Matthew didn't have to write anything about the yeast of the Pharisees in his book. And that's because Matthew had a lot of friends who were Pharisees. And that's because Matthew, because he was a tax collector, he knew a lot of scribes, and the scribes were this halfway point. They knew how to write, so they would do his tax registrations, his tax ledgers, but then the scribes would also be in relationship with the Pharisees and the others who were scholars in the Bible and in the Old Testament, you know, kind of thing. And so Matthew knew some of these scribes, and he knew some Pharisees, and I'm certain, I am certain that after Jesus was raised from the dead, Pharisees like Nicodemus and others had come to faith in Jesus, 
And now you've got Pharisees who are part of the church and Matthew's writing a letter and he says, hey, remember when we hated each other? And the guy's like, yeah, I remember when we hated each other. And Matthew, Matthew's like, here, read this book. And so then the Pharisees looking at the book and there it says right in the book, the yeast of the Pharisees. But here's the thing. He didn't have to write what the yeast was because all of the people in his environment knew it. They'd been hearing the Pharisees their whole life. They knew what the Pharisees taught. The problem is you and I didn't. We didn't experience it all. And so I'm going to share with you just three things briefly today that the Pharisees taught. Three things that were highly important to the Pharisees. And I'm not talking about the Sadducees. They had some different things. And I'm not talking about just the general, you know, high priest situation. I'm going to talk about the three things the Pharisees taught. Number one, they taught Jewish nationalism. Number two, they taught Mosaic and more. That means it's the stuff that Moses gave us and all the other things we think about the stuff Moses gave us. Legalism. And number three, a judgmental authoritarianism. Let me quickly explain them. The Pharisees taught that God had a special people in a special land. And that special people in a special land were ousted from that special land because the special people did not follow the special rules. And because the special people didn't follow the special rules, God ousted them from the land. And when he brought them back into the land, a whole new arrangement started where now the special people are back in the special land and they need to keep the special rules. And so then when the Romans invaded that area, they believed that the Romans were the outsiders and the special people in the special land with the special rules are still the same. And if they would just get back together doing the special things again, then God would send the Messiah King to oust the Romans and they would once again be a special kingdom. That's Jewish nationalism. They taught that the Jews were a special people. And yeah, the Jews had been a special people. There was a time in the past when God said, you are my chosen possession, my royal priesthood. There was a time in the past when that had happened. But when they came back from Babylon, there wasn't this whole upswell of, okay, God now is going to give them the power to rebuild a palace. They rebuilt the temple. Shabbily, but they did it. They rebuilt the wall. Acceptably. And then they started worshiping God again. But God continued to let them be controlled by surrounding powers. And he never once again told them, okay, we're going to make this deal that if you just simply pray hard enough and do the right things, I'll give you a nation again. He never promised that again. But the Pharisees believed that the Messiah existed to bring the nation of Israel to the forefront of human history again. And that Jews would once again reign supreme in that land. The Pharisees taught Jewish nationalism. The Pharisees also taught this mosaic and more legalism. They said, okay, the special rules aren't good enough because y'all didn't follow them. And so we're going to add more layers of special rules on top of the special rules so that we never get down deeper to the layer of rules that we don't follow. Here's an example. Uh, One of the commandments said, you should not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, what that really means is you shouldn't ever use God's word, God's name for your aims. Don't ever use God's name for your aim. That's what that passage means. So when I go up to someone and say, hey, listen, I know I'm a real jerk and everything like that, but I also am a Christian, and since you're a Christian, we should do business together, okay? Because then I'm using my Christianity, I'm leveraging my Christianity, my relationship with God somehow that I think I have, the rules, regulations, or whatever traditions I've been following, to try to gain something from you. And so when I use God's name for my gain, that is using it in vain. Does that make sense? 
That's what the original command was all about. But the people in Moses' day, they recognized that God's name was holy, and they put it everywhere. They put, so the name Yahweh, it showed up in people's names. Elijah, he didn't pronounce it Elijah. He pronounced it Eliyah, because Yah was the first word from God's name, Yahweh. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. Anytime you see J-A-H or Y-A-H or Y-A or J-A, anywhere in the Old Testament, that's someone who's injecting God's verbalized name into someone else's name or something some other thing. They used his name out loud a lot until later on when the Pharisee type-minded people got really uptight and they're like, oh no, that's one of the ten. We have to avoid saying that word out loud because if we say it too much, we might accidentally use it in vain. So then they created this covering around it where they would never pronounce it out loud. Instead, they pronounced the word Adonai. And that's why in Scripture the word Jehovah shows up in the book of in King James translations because Jehovah is the Hebrew letters for Yahweh combined with the Hebrew vowels for Adonai combined with the German pronunciation of the consonants from Yahweh, you get Jehovah. That's how that happened. But anyway, I'm digressing. The point is they created a rule that had nothing to do with the original rule and just surrounded the inner rule with the outer rule and then said you got to keep the outer rule. And so anyone, in fact, today in Judaism, they don't even say the word God out loud. They refer to God as the name. The name they currently use for God is the name. As if to say, we're not allowed to speak his name. Something I don't think God ever wanted his people. Nonetheless, legalism was a part of their thing. And then finally, the third thing that is very clear in the Pharisees is this kind of religious authoritarianism. It basically says this. It says, because we are the special people who have the special rules and understand the special rules, and because we are the people who've developed the other special rules on top of the inner special rules so that the outer special rules can insulate us from, from you know, doing the inner special rules, because we're the ones who've done that, we have the authority, and that means we get to tell you when you're wrong, why you're wrong, and what your punishment should be. In other words, we are the authority figures and we get to judge you. The Pharisees believed they had the authority to judge, which is why they killed Jesus. Now here's, here's the way to take that home. If you're ever talking to a teacher and that teacher says God has special people that he treats with special privileges, that's a person with the yeast of the Pharisees. If that teacher says you're one of the special people, And God wants to treat you with special treatment. That's the yeast of the Pharisees. If some teacher ever comes up to you and says, you know what? I'm right about this and uh, I get to determine that you're wrong about this and so I'm just going to judge you. and, And I think you, now that you know what I feel about that, you should start judging the other people around you. Let's, let's just pass this judgment along. You get your act together right, and then you can judge the people around you. Any teacher who tells you to be judgmental towards some other group of people, that's the yeast of the Pharisees. Any teacher who tells you, here's the letter of the law. I cannot go outside the lost tribes of Israel. Any teacher who says, well, Jesus said this, therefore you have to do it without paying attention to the whole context of who Jesus is and what else he taught and did is the yeast of the Pharisees. And so it all boils down to this. If if I could give you something to take home with you, it would be simply to have the faith of the Canaanite woman and the disciples 
what they should have been. And you just put it all together from these chapters, 14, 15, and 16, and it's just a recognition that I don't deserve anything. But a crumb from Jesus would be enough. I don't have anything. I don't have enough. But a crumb from Jesus is more than enough. And so I will receive from him and share it with others. I don't deserve anything. But a crumb from Jesus is enough. And so I will receive from him and share with others. Friends, I just want to encourage you to be the kind of people who live in receptivity. Jesus, I don't want anything else unless it comes directly from you. Who live in receptivity and who live in generosity and say, I just want to give and to share with others. Next week, we're going to be gathering together and we're going to celebrate us being together. Currently, we don't have enough resources to pull off all the things we ordinarily would want to do. We don't have Kidopolis fully staffed for next week. If one of you wants to step forward and volunteer to help us with Kidopolis, I would love that. We would, we would love to be able to care for the kids that we hope come next week. Uh, next week, we're going to be sharing in communion, which means we get to focus our hearts on receiving from Jesus directly from him. Next week, we're going to be uh, gathering our Gratitude Sunday offerings, and I encourage you to be someone who shares with others. And we're just going to continue to step into this mindset that says, Jesus, I don't deserve anything, but a crumb is enough. And so I will receive and I will share. Let me pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.